You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, and surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. Welcome everybody, Ralph here. Today we're going to talk about a concept called 10,000 Hours, one that was laid out in Malcolm Gladwell's number one best-selling book called Outliers, The Story of Success. In that book, he outlines the concept of 10,000 Hours as the amount of time that it takes someone to master a skill or a craft or a trade of some sort. He uses examples like Bill Gates and the Beatles and violinists to talk about all the work and the mistakes that happen before we see a success. You know, we often think there's these overnight successes that come out of nowhere when really when you talk to the person, They'll often say, gosh, I've been trying this and working at this for years and I made a lot of mistakes uh, and it was all worth it. And the point of it is that we often see failures as uh, a, a missed start or something that we're embarrassed by when really though, if we, if we roll those failures into succeeding, it becomes more worthy when we have that success or we achieve our goal when we realize how much time and effort we put into it. That's really the goal. That's really the prize. So today we're going to talk about those 10,000 hours and what it means to us. Thanks for listening, everybody, because you'll never believe this. And we're rolling. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us as we talk about 10,000 an episode about mastering your craft and spending time on things that are valuable and what that means to you. Jamie, welcome. Good to see you. Always good to see you, Ralph. Good to be back. It's been a, I feel like it's been forever. Yeah. So you brought up this idea. Um, what, what was the genesis of all this? What brought up the idea? So, of- uh, the interesting thing was I was driving, you know, down the road and all of a sudden I realized, you know, I've been surfing for, I don't know, 30 years. And in about in and around college, I started working on a couple tricks. I started working on like aerial tricks, which I'm really not very good at. And I started working on one specific trick, where it's like, as you're riding along, you go up onto the top of the wave. As the wave starts to do like, it starts to break and you go to go down. Instead of coming down with it as you normally do in riding straight, I, I kept trying to do a 360. I kept trying to like turn and spin out of it. And I realized I did that for like the first time I don't know if it was a couple months ago, but like, and I was so excited. Hooray! 30 years. 30 <laughs> that's what years I'm saying. You, you finally turned around. Wait a minute. I'm sitting, and that's what dawned on me. I was like, I've been working on a trick for over 20 years, and I landed it for the first time like you know, a couple my, weeks ago. My one-year-old can spin in the, spin around in the water too. You know that, right? <laughs> I'm sure he's much better than I am. So, the, But I'm sitting there, and I'm like, how many things do I have in my life that I sit here and I say, you know what? I'm going to work on something for 20 years and it might, I might not see the payoff for 20 years, but I'm still going to go for it. Yeah. And surfing's even harder than some other, you know, active uh, sports because I remember skateboarding and rollerblading, you have a very consistent ramp or rail that you can jump on. Exactly. 
And you can just try time over time, over time, over time, where right. surfing is even harder because if you don't have the right wave, there's no chance of pulling off the trick. Exactly. And I mean, that's where the aerials come in. Aerials, like there are guys who are, I always see and in the contest and they're going really fast and you're like, oh, he's going to do an air. And then all of a sudden the wave doesn't present the opportunity and they don't get to do it. And it's like, the thing is never the same. There's, they're, you know, they're called snowflakes almost for a reason. Right. But I remember, so this literally was a couple of months ago. I was, I did just that. I was just going really fast and boom, I burst a, a really good air and I landed it perfectly. I never land them. Like when I go for them, it's like a joke. It looks like I'm just flying away. My board goes one way. It's like a yard sale. I go the other way and I come, you know, splashing down and it's fun, but whatever. But this time I landed it and I was like, I am 42 years old and I did that. That was awesome. I was so proud of myself. I was like, I'm still doing airs. Yeah. It's amazing because how many people would have given up at that point or not, you know, continue to put in the work, especially of a, a hobby or just a, you know, a sport. It's not something you're earning money doing. It's really just, you know, for the love and, and your own self, right? Did you look around to see who else was? Totally. Who saw it? Who saw it? Hands were up. And then I ran because Leia no actually proof. came with me. None, none whatsoever. Leia actually came with me to the beach, but she needed like one of those gazebos. You know what I mean? We didn't have an umbrella yet. So she was under the gazebo, which was miles down the beach. And I ran up to her. I was like, you'll never believe what I did. And then I was like, now let's be honest. If she had been sitting there, like she would be watching like a, like a, you know, a girlfriend in high school, like, Ooh, look at what he's doing. No, she would have been reading her book. She never would have seen a darn thing that I did, but I was so proud of myself. I was like, I did it. Woo. Um, Such a difference between girlfriends and wives, you know, girlfriends <laughs> are like actively interested. Wives are like, oh, he's still a child. You know, it's so funny. There's watch a guy me, I, watch me, mama. <laughs> there was, there was a guy. Look what I could do. <laughs> totally. There's a guy in the surf video who actually said that during his time when he was surfing in like middle school, he was like, he spent the entire summer working on his aerials. And he was like, I thought that if I busted the biggest air that like girls would want to go out with me in school. Like that's what I thought was going to happen. And he's like, and I realized they don't want to have a, they don't want to have anything to do with surfers, let alone like because he busted <laughs> an air. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, so the, that's the, 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 the man's mind for sure is like trying oh, yeah. to, um, trying to impress women and people just with our, you know, silly little tasks. So no, I, I also cool. saw, I saw there was like an overlap in my life, at least. I don't know how it was in yours, but like when I started out this, this road to being a rabbi, I was like, I couldn't learn anything. Like when it comes to Jewish learning, you know, you, you first have the problems of Hebrew, right? You have to be able to crack the Hebrew open. Then you have to, and then the, the actual text itself, they're so, in, they're so encrypted and, 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 totally, I mean, off the wall in some ways. There's no vowels. Get, How do you figure it out? <laughs> it's all guttural. Um, yeah, there's no vowels, but also, you know, the, the actual texts themselves are presented in a way that like, I don't know if there's anything that's ever even been close to it. And I, and I realized I sat down to, to start this project of becoming a rabbi and just the study itself, which normally some people, you know, if they've been learning their whole life, takes them like, you know, three years, four years. I worked for over 10 years to get to, you know, from the beginning of the process to the end of the process. And then that doesn't end it. I mean, you learn your rest of your life, but like, that's sort of another thing. You have this goal and you say, you know, the fruitions of this, this whole endeavor might be years and years down the road. And you still, you, you embark on it, you know, and how many things do we do in our lives like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the difference is people who treat uh, those sort of things as a craft instead of a task. 
Mm. And I, that's huge in, in our field too. You know, I see a lot of preachers, I think they were done learning in seminary and they're still 20, 30 years in preaching the same style mm. uh, that they were when they were just, you know, brand new pastors. Um, and so they see it as a task, you know, and they often see people who don't, you know, they're like, oh, if people don't, uh, people aren't interested or aren't coming to my church, it's, um, you know, it's their choice. And it's like, well, if you're not working on the craft and trying hmm. to, you know, master that thing, um, actively engaging and, you know, developing it, you know, ju- sure. not just the, the, like you said about, you know, not just the scripture exegesis, pulling out what's important and what's meaningful and what do I need to share, but also how do you effectively engage and communicate? You know, mm. some people don't think that's part of it because we didn't learn that in school and they treat it as the task is complete. I'm just going to lather, rinse and repeat every Sunday for <laughs> the 30 years in my career. And you go, well, maybe you might want to treat it more like a, a fabric softener. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Treat it like a craft. You know, and that's the, I mean, that's the other commonality. Like you, you mentioned with surfing, you're trying to nail tricks, you know, with every, it's pretty obvious in every sport and hobby, whether it's uh, an active one like volleyball and surfing or um, one like painting, you know, you're trying stuff and you know, you know, you're messing up most of the mm-hmm. time. Sure. But I think there's very little, uh, if it's, if you're not treating something like a craft, you, you don't have that self criticism, that idea of like, okay, how can I grow? What did I do wrong? How do I switch this up next week? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people just don't, don't enter into that, um, self-awareness or at least that healthy criticism, at least not like you're loathing because you misinterpreted the Hebrew, sure. but you're like, oh, I wonder if this could be better. Or it could be done in a different way. Absolutely. I, you know, it was funny. There was a, there was a rabbi that I knew, um, two rabbis that I knew when I was living in Long Island many, many moons ago. Um, one of which um, was this guy who, I think he was a lawyer um, on the side and he was a rabbi sort of like, it was the, the, I'm sorry, it was the opposite. The lawyer was his job and, and he was a rabbi on the side and he did a ton of work to be a rabbi. I mean, he would, you know, not only do the sermons, um, he'd be there for all the prayer services um, when the high holidays came, you know, there's, you know, there's all this Torah reading to be done and there's different cantillation. All, all, he did it all. Like he just basically did everything. Mm-hmm. And one day he sort of mentioned me that another rabbi in the neighborhood, um, had in his contract that he would only show up to synagogue on certain days of the week, like that he would only come to the prayer services on certain days of the week. And I, and I said, how, why, why would you like, how could you be a rabbi and sort of sit down and say, well, we all have to be here and, and pray together, you know, two to three times a day. I'm only going to show up on alternate Tuesdays. Like, doesn't that show that you're not really in it for the love of the thing? You know, like, aren't you not really, and I know that you, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, cause I know there needs to be boundaries. And, and I know that the congregation can sometimes move in on those boundaries and you have to have clear defined, you know, but I felt like if you don't love this and want to constantly, like you're saying, work on the craft and, and be part of it. And it's not just like a, Hey, this is my job. Don't bother me. Like, how could that possibly be a good recipe? Yeah. I mean, I think it's tough there. I mean, I think because the craft follows the passion all the time. Right. So you, you, and you can't measure passion. There's no, there's no litmus test or barometer to tell you how passionate someone is. And you, you won't, you can only tell, by how much, how many of those 10,000 hours people are putting in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, maybe his passion's there, but his priority is somewhere else, right? Like, 
for me, I always say God, family, church is my my priority. So if people think I'm not here at church enough, I say I'm here enough plenty for my passion, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, it, and uh, you know, because or you maybe know, not for your passion, but yeah, my exactly. passion. <laughs> maybe, you know, other people's and other people's expectations are such a such an interesting factor in that in the 10,000, right? Because it's um, how much should other people influence how I'm spending my time my on my passion, developing a craft, figuring mm-hmm. out how to stick that landing. You know what I mean? Right. Like um, I listened to uh, a rapper, NF, who's an American rapper, he's done some amazing stuff, blew up in probably his, his album he launched in 2017 blew up. And then uh, launched a, a new one. His newest is 2019, The Search. And just this amazing, really uh, reflective, deep, uh, very real rapper. But some people say he was an overnight success. Mm. And he would say, that's ridiculous. He's, he's like, I've been putting in the work for a decade now, right? And he's like, and nobody listened to my first album in 2014. He said, just because it got popular, right? So but one of the things that he he says that I'm going to misquote uh, um, that I'm going to misquote, but I thought's important was you know he put in the work because he loved it, not because he got you know record sales or people responding how great it was. You know he was passionate like the about podcast. It. Right. Like the podcast, like like the podcast. Yes. Yes. That's why, that's why we have no idea of the analytics. It's uh, we are here for the the show notes. (laughs) Always in the show notes, but right. Like we, we hear about overnight successes and it's like, well, you can't listen. If you're putting in the work as a craft, you, you, you can't listen to the positives or negatives to determine where you're at, you know what I mean? And that's sure. a, that's, that's a tough game, right? Because if you're listening to the negatives and letting them get to you, you should listen to the positives and get, let them get to you. And if you're listening to the positives for what you need to do to develop your passion and put that work in, you, then you've got to listen to the negatives. And so it's like, okay, do, sure. you, do you listen to none of it or do you respond to all of it? And really, I think, again, that's why I think the passion is important when you're like, okay, you like, you picked that one aerial trick, that 360 that you were passionate mm-hmm. about. You just picked that thing, right? And it wasn't like you you analyzed, here are 20 different tricks I could possibly do. Which one is yeah. my wife going to be impressed with the most? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> you know, it's it's like, okay, I'm, 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 I love this. I think I'm going to succeed. And it could have been any one. You know, you could have picked a harder trick. You could have picked an easier trick. And, and really, if it's all for you, um, and it just so happens there's a byproduct, then it's great. And so back to your the reference of the the rabbi who was putting in, you know, uh, just kind of setting boundaries. Maybe that was what he wanted to do for himself. You know, he prioritized his passions elsewhere and realized, you know, on top of all this, you got to make a living. You can't just put 10,000 hours into being a carpenter in your garage and not make any money right. to eat. So, you know, I don't know what mm-hmm. else is going on in his life. I think serving, you know, if you're, you know, serving our, our, our work as a calling and a serving nature right so um yeah we put you know we put some of it in but i don't know how much that relates to you know that passionate pursuit of ten thousand hours and mastering something um as much as it is just you know just showing up to serve 
So I think what you hit on too is a really good point, which is a lot of people, I think, see that even if it's not an overnight success, but the success that other people have, and I've often um, tried to sort of uh, put this out to other people that you see whatever product you see, right? You see a sermon that's a great sermon, if that's what it is. You see somebody become the CEO or, you know, or they get a hit, you know, song on the charts. And that's exactly the point is that you, you didn't see the back work. You didn't see all that led up to that moment, right? Of when you saw something great happen. And a lot of people really see that great moment and they say, I want that. I want to have that. But then you, if you said to them, guess what? There's 10,000 hours of work that lean up to that great moment that you saw right there. They'd go, ah, I mean, it sounds nice, but I don't really want to do that 10,000 hours worth of work. Like that doesn't sound like a good idea. Yeah. Like, have you heard of anybody who had a public success who was actually an over, like started very recently and then blew up big at a craft, not at a viral YouTube video where they fell down yeah, the stairs sure. and the their cat pooped on them or cat something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that, right. right. Do you know of anybody? Do you, have you heard of anybody who's like that? I, I, you know, the truth of the matter is I have not heard of anything like that. And, and I was thinking about, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I don't even remember what it was. And the person the hosts of the podcast were perceiving the individual as a sort of overnight success. And it seems yeah. like that they had just blown up and they said, you know, wow, isn't that just amazing? How you, and, and the person was like, uh, no, I was working for like 10 years before that. And like, nobody was paying attention to me. And then something and it happened. And it's that I think the overnight success thing, it, it leads into what I wanted to talk about as well, which is you know, what do we value um, and how much do we value that hard labor that we put into something, right? Like in Judaism, we have, um, it, one of my favorite quotes is that, you know, our, our prayer liturgy says the same all the time. And, and it's not, the prayer liturgy itself never changes, but the, the great line that I heard, but you change around the liturgy. You are the thing that changes around the words itself and, and different words have different meaning or different phrases have different meaning over time. And so it's really like that, that work to becoming someone who can either dive in proficiently, uh, pray proficiently or learn proficiently. Those things take a really, really long time. And when you see somebody else doing it great, you go, God, I really want that. Yeah. But do you, do you sit there and think about how am I going to get there? Like, how am I going to achieve that goal? It's important, right? It's like, it's almost the whole, the journey of it is almost sometimes the whole thing. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of where you invest the reward, right? Where's, where's this prize going to be? Right. And I think that's the, the beauty is in the work for those of us who do the work, but for those who observe it, the beauty is in the product, right? When I listen right. to an album, when I listen to, and, and some people, like, if you really love it, you go and you're like, then you search for the work, right? So back to NF, mm -hmm. I went and found all of his B-sides and singles that didn't make the albums, you know, just to see what, what, where did it come, where did he come from? What did his, what did his debut 2014 album look like when he didn't have a deal? And it wasn't well-polished. I probably wouldn't <laughs> listen to it a first time and didn't listen to every song through, right. but that's, you know, that's the work. And for him, for us, there's that beauty, like you said, in putting it in, uh, in the liturgy and the, in the, you know, we're changing in order to, find ways to serve and give. The other thing that, mm. that must be said about the difference between our work and some of the other skills and work we're talking about is ours is very public, right? Like you can't practice a private bris. 
there's there's right. gotta be at least a baby just, in a, just me, right? There's gotta at least a baby, a baby in the room with you. <laughs> <laughs> and the criticism comes in the crying every time, right? Like you get negative exactly. feedback every exactly. time you circumcise, don't you? It's always like, oh, I must have failed that one. The kid's screaming again. <laughs> So the so the best part is I try to explain to be when I explain my work to people I say you know like okay so especially if they're like a surgeon I'm like okay imagine you were a surgeon and everybody was standing there tapping their feet wanting to go eat a bagel and they're like are you done yet are you done yet like with <laughs> like, like that's what it is yeah you're sitting there with a the scalpel and it's like everyone's up in that gallery up there going uh, hello I've got lunch coming and it's getting a little cold over yeah. <laughs> Do they think but, it's um, cold because no, but, of the bait? And anyway, yeah, <laughs> nice. So, I, and I think that's that's, you know, I, that's the difference for for us because it's hard when you talk about like putting in the work for uh, for preaching and worship and, and liturgy and our role. People do see the work, the failures, the missteps, the, mm-hmm. the tries, right, and the the fall downs and get back ups and the apologies, right? Like, and I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm that I've always had communities that have allowed me to fail um, who have come to me and said, Hey, I, I didn't think this was right. Or you said it this way and it, but it, what, it, how we perceived it was this way. And I, and I, I, you know, I have had to develop some humility and apologize. Oh gosh, I didn't intend it that way. Or that's not what I meant. Let me think through how I, how I could say it better, what I actually mean. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not, you know, and, and, and a public craft is never perfect. You know what I mean? It's not like um, a clock where once you're done, you close that thing up and the clock works perfectly. There's always more to develop, right? But I'm just so grateful. You know, I remember in seminary, I, um, you know, I consider that part of the 10,000 hours and I did this sermon and, and one of the references was I basically compared Tom Cruise to Jesus. Well, that, that makes sense. (laughs) because at least when my when you ask my wife no i'm kidding go ahead yeah (laughs) go ahead yeah it was terrible and and it was really just something tom cruise did when he was on an oprah interview he jumped on top of her couch and said i love this woman i compared it to when jesus was in the temple and he read from the book of isaiah and then everyone's staring at him and he stands up and he says this 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 uh scripture is fulfilled he says i'm the i'm the prophet that isaiah was talking about and so I, in, in when I did that, I jumped on the front pew and I said, you know, I, I, I did what Jesus, I said what Jesus said, this scripture has been fulfilled, just like Tom Cruise. The analogy was bad. I shouldn't, I, you know, I should have thought about how people perceive that and how people's image of Tom Cruise and any person comparable to Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Definite failure. But a couple of years ago, so this is probably 10 years, 12 years, maybe after that you know, initial practicing seminary and getting criticism. A couple of years ago, I was preaching and there was a culminating moment. And I thought this would be a great one to jump on the, jump on the pew and scream something like this would really catch people. And I had that fear in the back of my head of the time I did it in seminary and it failed. And I really had to process like, was that because I jumped on the pew or what else was it? And I realized it wasn't that I was preaching for effect in that moment because I was blaspheming Jesus to be like this, this Scientologist. And so I was like, Oops. well, I'll give it another shot. And if it doesn't work, then I figure I'm on our, I'm on, I'm on the 9,000. I, you know, I'm, I'm at 9,000 hours. I still need to put in another grand. There you go. I did there it. I jumped on the pew. I screamed out whatever I needed to scream. 
And at the end of that sermon, I remember there was an applause. And it wasn't because something I did, but it was like this had the effect that I needed to have. And so nice. the point there is like, you know, you got to keep putting in that work and trying. And because we have public roles, people see the failures and we have to figure out how do we go deeper. So the work is also not just in preaching or leading worship or um, leading, you know, doing what you do with mm-hmm. families and such. But it's the humility of, oh, geez, that really sucked. Am I going to run away and never show up in public again? Or am I going to apologize to this family because I cut the kid too much or I didn't have the Ooh. right words to say? And yep. then say, hey, I, 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 you know, thank you for, for trusting me. That'll never happen again. Let me help figure it out. I think that's a huge part of those 10,000 hours that comes in a public role. You know, because in surfing or in volleyball, like when I was in high school uh, and playing traveling volleyball teams, um, you know, you're screwing up, but you're not having to go back to your team and be like, Hey, this is what I learned. This is what I did. I'm going to try it again. Next time you just get back out there, take another set and do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it doesn't take the humility, right? It doesn't take the public or the uh, emotional work, the vulnerability and transparency that we also have to have with it. So that's got to be a piece of it at least for us. And I think for a lot of people listening, considering, you know, whatever it is you're applying your passion to, uh, it's not just 10,000 hours of redoing the same thing over and over again, but it's having the humility and vulnerability and self-criticism, healthy self-criticism to grow. And I think a lot of people will stop there and think they've mastered the craft without really going deeper into, okay, maybe I'm not perfect yet. Maybe this wasn't the best. Um, do you see a lot of that? How do you see that, Jamie? And as far as people so, getting, getting, you know, critiquing yeah, themselves and growing, you know, what's interesting is what you reminded me of was not as much of me getting critiqued because I, I maybe I don't even internalize them as much as I should, but I, I had a teacher once, and this was actually a great, a great lesson. And it's right on par with what you were talking about. He, he did a, um, he would do like these motivational speeches, um, they're called like Musser schmoozes. And he, that's what they call them in yeshiva in schools. That, that, is, that is a Jewish word I've ever heard of it. Lots of spit. <laughs> lots lots of, of spit. In like, German, it's like a, it's it would like just a good, sound like coughing if you translate That's it. right. It's like, a, it's like a kugel, right? It's the kugel, like a Musser schmooze. So anyway, right. so he, he gave the these Mustafa talks. schmoozer, yes. Yes, that's he. He got up and he would just. I, I mean, the man would maybe even go into, you know, almost like flying completely off the cuff, right? And this one time, he he went in and he wanted to like give us this message that the school that we were going to, although we were very left leaning, right? So we were sort of like on the very fringe of what would be considered orthodox. He wanted everyone to know, like, you come to this school, you're orthodox. Okay. This is no joke. And he starts listing off things that he's like, you know, and, and he, and he listed off this one thing. And he said, if, if I came home and my wife did X, it doesn't even matter what it was, but it was something which was not completely in line with Jewish law. Right. And he said, if, if I came home and my wife said, you know, well, I'm no longer doing that anymore. He said, well, that would probably be the end for the both of us. Mm. And there were people in the audience, you know, myself included, whose wife and, and husband were having these struggles. We were having these tensions and it was really hard to sort of bridge the gap between somebody who's a little more religious and someone who's a little less. And so we were not doing what he was talking about. And I came, and I came to him a couple of weeks later and I said, listen, I just wanted to, you know, let you know that, 
that when you said that, when you, when you sort of pitched that idea, I, I know what your message was, but I think there were some people, I know myself in the, in the community that were really sort of put off by it. Yeah. And I said, and, and, and the amazing thing was, and this was the great part of the lesson. He just, well, he sort of went, Oh God, I say things all the time. I don't even remember saying that. Like <laughs> it was the first thing that came out of his mouth, <laughs> you know, and he was like, but, but the great part was that he, he didn't, people he didn't hear that. that. He was like, Oh God, there was, there was a hot mic. Hot mic. <laughs> so, so I said to him and he goes, you know what? I'm really glad. I'm really glad you told me. And he said, I'm really sorry that that's what I said. And I didn't mean to make anybody uncomfortable by it. And, and from, from him, you know, sort of seeing that modeling of, of a way to be a rabbi, I think I sort of came away from it with this feeling that, you know, if anybody ever came to me, sort of like what you're talking about, if anybody ever came to me and said, this didn't work for me, what you said wasn't right, or it hurt my feeling, whatever it was, I felt like I would turn around like he did and say, Oh my God, I said that. I don't even remember saying that. No, I would say, I would say, I'm glad you came to me. Thank you for letting me know. And, you know, I'll work on it. And I think that that's, that is a great sort of um, model of leadership. I think on, on all fronts, not just in the religious spectrum. Yeah. Well, and it's also, you know, the 10,000 hours we put into relationships also takes that hard work. And I see a lot of marriages that are struggling because people don't put in the effort with that sense of vulnerability and reflection or don't, you know, treat their partner with some grace and acceptance and give them the benefit of the doubt when they're struggling or not, you know, not having that reflection. And so they think, you know, we got married 10 years ago, we mastered this thing, right? The relationship was good then. Why is it messed up now? They're like, you still have you still have thousands of hours to put in. You still have self-reflection. You've grown and changed a bit. And so has your spouse. Um, and it takes effort. You know, I think anyone who thinks that marriage is, um, you know, is easy or it's just about love really miss out on the beauty of having it be a work in progress that takes effort. And because the more that you put in that effort to continue to connect with one another and be closer and understand your partner, the more beautiful it becomes because you put in the hard work because it was difficult, right? Like that, that 360 aerial you landed mm -hmm. surfing, right? It was better because you've spent 30 years mastering it, right? You've fallen right. a ton of times. You're like, man, this is so rare that it's beautiful. If it were, you know, something as easy as an Ollie on a skateboard, I mean, it's cool, but it's, anybody can do it and it takes a day to figure out and then you can do it billions of times, but you know, right. Marriage takes work. It takes effort and you got to keep learning new stuff. There's never a point when you're like, okay, we're good. We're done. We're at Check. a place where we're comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we, uh, so we have a thing uh, in our tradition that um, when uh, 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 they're called a chatan and a kalat, when the when the bride and the groom are sort of getting ready to be married, when they're engaged, and then there's like uh, usually some time in between, they start to learn about uh, with a usually it can be with a rabbi, it can be with um, what's called a yoetzet halacha, which is a woman who is also functioning as a rabbi. They basically meet with somebody and sort of learn what's it going to be like to be married together. And for a while I worked uh, with a couple different um Please say there's like a, there's like a dummy they have to carry around. Like in high school when you have the baby, the fake baby, the egg, you have to carry the around. Egg. Like, 
Yeah, it'd be great if you had like a fake wife or a fake husband. You're fake like, wife. carry this dummy around for a week and they're going <laughs> to... All gonna I'm envisioning you, is that... They're going to give you directions while you're trying to drive somewhere on how to drive. <laughs> That's exactly what I was envisioning is those blow-up dolls in the side of the, you know, the passenger seat blow-up dolls that are like, <laughs> like almost as bad as the ones from Airplane. You know Why don't like you the, chew with your mouth closed? <laughs> so so it's so going to be... It would be amazing. You're but, hogging uh, all the sheets. <laughs> yeah. So this is very, this would be a lot of value to, to get those points across to them early on. Um, but, but a lot of it is about Jewish law, but what we, what I always sat down and told them was those two things that you just said, one, you know, if you believe that Hollywood, like this whole Hollywood idea of what love is that boom, it happens, boom, you're in love and boom, you, everything's happily ever after you, you you've come into the wrong business. And, um, you know, that, that, like you said, it takes a, the whole thing takes a lot, a lot of effort and a lot of work. Um, and I've all, and, and the one piece of advice I said, I said to one of the people, one of the people I was studying with, I said, if you want one, if I can only give you, I don't like when people, you know, sort of talk down to me and say, Hey, I got the plan for you. You want to be as successful as X. I'm going to tell you how to be successful. Yeah. But I said, there's just one little piece of advice that I've garnered in my time and being, you know, with my wife it's this, it's the idea that like, if she comes to you and she's having, she's just off and things are, and she's not happy and she snaps or, you know, and same, obviously the same thing goes for women to men, but if somebody just snaps at you and, and if you just take one second and don't let your, you know, to, to sort of respond with the pride and, and, and say, you know, wow, can somebody talk to me like that? If you just take one second and think something must be going on. It yeah. opens up that possibility for what you're talking about, about listening, communicating, growth, you know what I mean? And remembering that there, that other person has a lot of needs too. It's not just me. You know what I mean? So, so that, that, um, was my only piece of advice. I felt like I, uh, was worthwhile to give, but, but we yeah. have these things that we do to sort of hopefully start that process off in a way that people are going to be open and, you know, to the dialogue and growth that they're going to go through. Yeah. And since I'm perfect at marriage, let me give a good example. <laughs> Here it comes. This morning, even, uh, the girls were fighting and they woke up Kendra and Kendra came running out and she was yelling at me of what I needed to do when the girls are fighting. And because this instance, something similar has happened often enough that I feel like I've learned from it and done some self-reflection, what I've learned is that I often get defensive and I'll yell back at her uh, and we'll be in this fight about basically nothing. And so this morning, what I did instead was I said, okay, I'll do it differently. And she kept going and going. And it's almost like sometimes, you know, your spouse wants you to get into it because that's the pattern. And right. I was like, this isn't about me. She was woken up out of a cold sleep. The girls are fighting. Neither of us like that. Uh, one of them hurt the other. No, no one likes that. And we want to protect our kids, but really she knows at her best moments that I couldn't have done anything to stop them from fighting. And even if I got into it, it wouldn't have stopped it. And she still would have woken up, but she just needs mm. to have that outlet. So I didn't do anything. Uh, Kendra was getting ready to take the girls to school about an hour later. And she came over and she apologized and just said, sorry, mm. I was yelling. I was angry about this. And so, you know, we hugged and we, we settled it, but I was so proud that I had learned not to get into a fight because it's better to be connected in the middle of that when it's not about 
you know, you and the other person, because rarely are the fights in marriage and in any, in most relationships, rarely are the fights about, I hate you. You're an awful person. Uh, this needs to end. And if they are, that's a whole different story. Sure. And that's a newness. That's a new task to master. But the typical ones that you're spending the 10,000 hours on are the ones that aren't really about the individual or how much you love each other or how much you want to be together. Um, it's about other stuff. And, and, you know, you're kind of learning the craft of, okay, how do we do this dance without feeling disconnected? Um, and it's a beautiful thing when you can do it right. The end of that was we embraced and said goodbye lovingly and we're off rather than spending a whole day in psychic screaming at each other and lashing out, <laughs> you know, lashing out, uh, in silence at our work. So beyond, I want to, I want to shift it for a moment beyond, uh, marriage. So we talked marriage, we talked, um, hobbies and sports for a bit in, uh, I guess, religious practice, this has really been, um, beautiful for me to see myself applying, you know, hours to, to, uh, to getting good at these religious practices, but it's also been beautiful to be able to teach people, um, and watch them grow without being wrapped up in, you know, oh, it didn't, what I told them to do didn't work the first time mm-hmm. I must've failed or, and, you know, mm-hmm. them coming back to me and saying it didn't work. One of the things that I that that really applies here is um, is prayer and meditation. Um, I know for me, prayer for for years of my life was really just a list of uh, here's what I'm thankful for and here's what I want. And really, it took time and disciplining myself towards meditation and coming into a deeper understanding of the presence, being in the presence of God, that was more important than using God as, you know, an Amazon wish list, um, that really helped me see that mastering it or, you know, putting in those hours to get good at meditation gave me a better experience. Here, here's an example. So I started meditating, um, shortly after three major traumas in my life, probably the biggest ones in my life happened within a couple months. Someone recommended meditation, sent me a link to uh, an app I can use. So I said, all right, I'll give it a try. So I spent 10 minutes a day just following the app and what the, the, um, the leader would do. And I, you know, I think I was just at such a loss and tired most of the day from processing and grief that I was just like, all right, I got 10 minutes. Um, and what I found is about three weeks in, I had my first sort of revelation or, or emotional, I had feelings, physical feelings that were comforting and euphoric and sort of out of body in a way that I can't really describe still. But I was like, wait a minute, was this what I was trying to do for the last, you know, three weeks? And maybe as I continued and the months went by, I thought maybe this is what I was trying to do in prayer, but couldn't get there with wish lists and uh, gratitudes, right? And so now, you know, meditation has become an invaluable part of um, of my life where it, you know, if I have a headache or an allergy attack, I know meditation makes a difference, but only because I put in those hours. Once I get out of practice for a little while and it's not regular, hmm. I can't go into meditating and get that same feeling or expect that same feeling. It took putting in the work to really get there and experience what's worth it and have that, what we call a religious experience. What, what, what religion hopes for didn't come to me until I really dedicated myself to it and didn't focus on the outcome or the end result. 
right? It was more just, let's do this again. Let's do this again. Let's do this again. And maybe those are the failures we we're talking about or the, 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 the missteps along the way. And I, you know, like you said, you tried that trick for 30 mm-hmm. years, uh, oftentimes when you went in the water, but you didn't experience the fullness of it until you, you know, you really landed it. But was, were all of those trials really a loss and not worth anything? Or were they all worth something that brought you to the point of, you know, something greater? And that, you know, that's the religious experience we're hoping for from prayer and worship, serving, giving, growing, all that kind of stuff, Bible study. That's what we hope for. But we think people often focus on the end result and not the journey of spending time doing it and the greater feeling they get they get from it. Do you have that experience in Judaism as well? I think I think in Judaism, um, I think there's two sort of um, paths people take. I think there are people who who take a path of, um, and I think we've talked about this before, that there is sort of a checklist of things I need to do. I need to pray three times a day. I need to do some study. I need to, right? And they just sort of check these things off and they always just sort of do them. And, and they're not necessarily things that, that they see as sort of growth opportunities or um, opportunities to get closer to God. Um, it's sort of like, you know, I've got the, the laundry list or the list I need to go to the, the supermarket with. And I, and I got all the stuff, the baskets full. So let's just go to checkout kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think then there's this other um, way to look at all the experiences you can have in your daily life as a Jewish person. And that, that is what you were talking about, which I think it comes from how do you sort of view the, the meta experience? Like, do I look at this entire thing almost like we were talking about before as a job, as a checklist, or do I look at this as like every single one of these opportunities that I'm getting to be part of during my day or do during my day are ways for me to grow and learn. And that to me is sort of like, when you think about people who uh, I'm sure you've seen it, people who are on the basketball court, maybe, or, you know, shooting hoops, but they're not, they're not like enjoying themselves. They're, they're constantly drilling themselves to, to get better. And it almost seems like it's a job for them. Right. And, and when you talked about this, this trick that I tried for as long as I tried, never once did I come off of missing that trick in 30 years and go such an idiot. Why did I do that? Like I never, why did I even try? I'm never going to do it. Like every single time I just went, Oh man, that was so close. All right, maybe next time. That's because you know, the that's because the water is more forgiving than a skateboard ramp. Because there are many times, <laughs> many times on a half pipe that I fell and thought, "Man, I am never doing that again." <laughs> I got to tell you, I I am very thankful for the fact that there aren't so many hard objects to hit off when you when you mess up in surfing. It is a big yeah, it's a big difference there. But but when you think of it as like I I have to land this trick or I have to do this, you know, I don't know, praying, learning, whatever it is. If, and I have to do it. And once I'm done it, I go, oh, let's just move on. I don't want to, have an, I, don't, I don't have to go back that until tomorrow or whatever it be. If you look at it as like, I'm surfing and I love surfing and every single experience that I have along the way is great for me, whether it was one where I fell down or one that I, you know, landed something or, you know, and that, that is a totally different way of looking um, and, and sort of experiencing the, the, the day, your, your religious life. And, and I think it's so much healthier. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if people are, again, if people are following their passion and uh, it becomes worth it every time to try and learn and grow, even if it's hard or painful, uh, 
Um, and it's, you know, it takes also being very real with yourself about, okay, am I really passionate about this or am I, am I lying to myself about wanting to, you know, pursue this? Um, am I only playing, am I only, am I only in law school because my parents want me to, right. or am I passionate about, you know, being a part of the justice system? I think that's a huge, a huge contributor because there's plenty of people who are miserable while they're putting in those 10,000 hours or even mastered something that just, it sucks, you know, to continue right. to do it. So, you know, it's something interesting, sort of another shift that I feel like I'd like to hear your input on is, is, you know, in this goal of, of bettering yourself for religious purposes, whatever it be, um, to sort of refining yourself in some way, how much do you use something or someone else in the world? Meaning, I think there's a, this point where we have gotten to in the world where everybody just uses the internet. They use ways to get wherever they're going to go. They don't ask people for help. Right. And when I was first starting on my journey in rabbinical school, um, I connected with uh, a gentleman who was in his eighties um, and he was very, he was a lear very learned man. And, and I realized, you know, like there's a real value that isn't placed anymore on, you know, who do I learn from? How do I learn how much is that person learned and, and is, you know, and the, the age this person is like, those things are not valued as much in this day, you know, in, in the way that I think most people look at the world, they sort of say, I'll do it all myself. Yeah. And how much more valuable is the, the goal that you attain when you had somebody who was helping to elevate you on that journey? You know what I mean? That, that for me was a, a vital part of it. Yeah. I think it's, I don't remember who it was, but they said you need someone behind next to and in front of. So in front of would be a mentor next to would be a, a partner and behind would be somebody who's not really in the field kind of supporting you along like a spouse or a, a good friend who's not a, mm -hmm. not working on the same thing. Um, yeah. It's something that's definitely been long forgotten about, or at least less people are less interested in. I know in the business culture, um, mentorship is often highly valued, uh, you know, and, and, and it's often shocking when you hear some of these CEOs and books or on interviews talk about how they reached out to another uh, leader and asked them to be their mentor. And you're like, well, you're 20 years in as the CEO of one of the largest tech companies in the world who is going to coach you forward? And it's not about success. It's again, about the craft, about the moments of those 10,000 hours. And they're still seeing themselves as a, a, a work in progress, not a completed work of art. And uh, I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing to have people, people with you on the journey. Um, and I think to have that, that kind of rounded out version that I mentioned of the three folks um, and using them for, you know, very different purposes um, really helps you not get too down on yourself or too no, you know, high on your yourself. horse <laughs> or up on oh, the yeah. pedestal, you know, oh, that's, yeah. what, that's what a good person uh, by your side and behind you will do for you. They, you know, like your wife, she's like, Oh, I didn't even see it. I was sleeping. <laughs> like, so, um, all right. Uh, this might, this might not rub you the right way, but, uh, there was, there's actually a sect of Judaism called Chabad. And in Chabad, there's, there has been some talk for some time that the leader of that sect who died a few years back is actually the Messiah. And somebody I heard once, and, and it's, it's very contentious within the Jewish community. There are people who, you know, won't even have anything to do with Chabad because they're afraid, you know, they're just totally against the fact that somebody, a leader that lived in our time would start saying that they're the Messiah. And it was whatever, long short, 
I heard uh, one of my teachers say um, this whole Messiah talk came very much later in his career when his wife had already passed away. If she had still been around, he probably wouldn't have been talking that Messiah stuff. It's <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yep, wives always put us like, you, you, oh, you think, oh, you think you're the Messiah? Why don't you go wash the dishes? Hey, that's <laughs> like, eh. I, 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 either way. I think having people who support you and especially like you said, have somebody who can take you down a peg. That's vital. That's definitely going to help you in your growth and learning. I mean, that's why um, competitive sports and, and anything competitive as a child, I think is so healthy is because you're in a very safe space in general, right? You're not, your livelihood doesn't depend on how good you play under eight soccer, even though it um, might feel like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um but you have, you know, you have that team, you know, with a common goal, you have that coach that's really on your side, but helping pull you forward. Um, and you're out there, you know, you're kind of putting in practice time, but you've also got those games and you're right. It feels like the whole world at the time, whether you win or lose or how you, you know, how you play the game. Um, but in the end, it doesn't matter. I don't remember any games other than the big ones and, you know, amazing feats that I accomplished along the way or experienced. I don't remember like the little minuscule games that we lost three to two on a random Saturday. Right. Um, but I, those were hours being put into, you know, learning to practice, learning to grow and having good people uh, by your side. I think, you know, and, and you even begin to f- formulate a sense of the type of person and you don't want to be right. You see other people, in who you get over competitive and sure. uh, angry or playing dirty and cheating, that kind of stuff. And you decide that maybe, maybe for you, that is who you want to be, but you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> and if you are welcome, Joe Rogan's <laughs> going to be wonderful for you. <laughs> <laughs> we can give you some good recommendations if you need them. Um, Joe, if you're listening, I apologize. Give me a uh, call. We'll have coffee and, and settle. No big whoop. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but anyway, that's why I think youth, youth sports are, are just so incredibly valuable. I don't play half the sports I used, I, you know, I played when I was a kid, but I learned a ton from that and from having mentors and, uh, players. Do you think, you know, I've, uh, there's a lot of stuff sort of floating around. I haven't seen this in my neck of the woods so much, but, um, do you have, and what do you think of, uh, those sorts of sports having no winners? and no losers. Are you a fan of that? Or is that something that you feel like also helps people to grow to know like who the winner is, who the loser is. And it's not to call them the loser. You don't have to call them the loser, but you know what I mean? Like there are these people, everyone gets an award now, no one gets, you know, and I'm like, but it's okay to win something. It's okay to lose something. It's okay to, you know, have your day where you weren't shining. And then it's even more valuable when you do shine that day, when you do win your thoughts. Yeah. I don't, I'm, uh, I, I think it's I think it's people moving away from teaching a tough lesson and have too much trouble watching a child, especially learn a tough lesson. Um, mm. But again, it's how they're being taught and how they're applying that. I you know I think it's fine to have winners and losers. I you know I think participation trophies might be fine as long as they're smaller than the first place trophy. <laughs> you know I think. Um, uh, like a pat on the back, that kind of a thing. Yeah, no, I just, and- I, I think, I think there is a value. I, I think you, you might agree with this that there is a, there is a value of sort of learning from mistakes and right, and that that should start. You know, no one should be kept in a bubble 
for their entire life. You know what I mean? And then only when they get out into the real world, feel out, wait, there are failures out here and people are going to be upset with me if I don't do whatever it is I need to do. You know, like I think those things are uh, of value. Yeah. I think uh, the, the, so maybe not so much sports, but parenting may have a good application to what you're saying is, you know, we're learning more about how do we value and encourage effort than the um, result, you know, like Zoe, you really tried really hard to uh, get that fixed or whatever she's, she's mm-hmm. working. I really appreciate that you spent extra time, even when it got difficult rather than good job, you tied your shoes because then when she doesn't tie her shoes or, you know, fails at something later, she thinks she's a mess and she can't do anything right. Rather than trying is right. the, is the most important part. So maybe for sports, that could be, you know, kind of what, what's happening, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's what's happening, but I think in parenting, we do see that. And that does sort of feed those 10,000 hours, right? You have to get some, Mm -hmm. there has to be some balance of like, uh, okay, I messed up, but I tried, or I put in those three hours of work and learned something from it, even if the end product was, you know, a total failure or that sermon tanked or, you know, whatever I, whatever I did wasn't, worth it. Okay. What, what good right. came from it? How did I grow? How did I change? What can I do differently next time? That's the effort piece. I think that's really important um, to teach, especially children who, um, yeah. And that like, kind of you do it or not, you win or you're not valuable at all kind of culture. I'm just going to throw out, cause we haven't had it in a long time. I just want to throw out a piece of comedy here, if that's okay. If, uh, I don't feel, have you ever seen a Dana Carvey's stand up about parenting? I don't know if he's done a bunch of it, I'm sure, but there was the one where he, uh, it's naked he about, time. <laughs> he talked about the difference between Bing. his parent, his parenting stuff. Oh, that was good times. But where his father, you know, his sort of his father's rearing of him and his rearing of his children. I don't know if you ever saw this. And he said, like, his father was a military man and he used to like beat him with the belt. And he would like, you know, if you said, you know, go do this thing and you didn't, the belt would come out and, you know, and then he said, you know, and then the, his kids, now they go like, he says, one parent pitches the idea and the other one cheers it on. I don't, do you guys do that in your house? Cause we do this in our house where it's like, no. Hey, do you want pizza? Pizza. The other person says, Ooh, pizza tries to like convince the child that that's what they want to eat oh instead gosh. of like, you know, just going dinner's pizza, shut up and eat it. You know, like that's yeah. not well, the way we're doing pizza's it. Pizza's a tough example. You're talking more like, like yeah. ratatouille or something that they're not going to like. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Ah, good times, man. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Ralph, I think it's a good place to wrap it. You? Yeah, that sounds good, man. We put in, uh, this was about 10,000 hours. So good job. Uh, at least 10,000 seconds, maybe 10,000 seconds. Mm-hmm. Well, eh, we'll take it. Whatever it we'll was, it, it was worth it. Part of the journey. Hope you all liked it. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Like, subscribe, and share the podcast wherever you can. And we hope to see you next week on another episode of You'll Never Believe This. See you later, guys. Bye.